Wow, Jim, that is quite a story. I love how just in the first chapter you you essentially gloss over, you know, one of for me one of the most moving and profound stories I've heard about someone's, you know, brain health and overcoming and I think certainly I do and I think a lot of people relate to at some point in their life having some kind of internalized limitation, something that was put on them that, you know, we've been carrying around and but what's really extraordinary about your story is that you know, your limitations, it's very real to say, well, these are real. This is a brain injury. It would be so easy for you to have lent into excuses and said, well, what could I possibly do? Mm. And I know we carry excuses and listen to your story. I just have to ask you, you know, having overcome these very real objective limitations, do you now truly believe that limitations like can be taken away, that people can be limitless? You know, I believe that we all go through challenges, and with challenges come change. And as I mentioned in that chapter, it's not about being perfect. You know, I'm certainly not perfect. I don't, even when it comes to learning, I don't have a photographic memory, you know, but the goal is to advance beyond what we believe is possible, you know, in our lives and to be a role model for people around us. That difficult times, as I'm sure everyone who's listening, we have these challenges. The difficult times, they could define you they could diminish you or that they could develop you. And uh, ultimately, we, we decide. And uh, when, when, when our family came to this country, and by the way, I love this, this conversational part. You know, this is something where I feel a lot of the listeners will get a lot of value out of because it's not scripted. And, um, you know, I'm an admirer of, of your work and, the, you know, the, what we could co-create with everyone listening right now. Um, you know, there are internal... Uh, limits and there's external limits. You know, when people are thinking about resources, my family, they immigrated to the United States. My, my father was 13. Both his parents had passed away at the age of when he was 13. They, they couldn't afford to, to feed him. So he moved here with, uh, with his aunt. And, you know, typical story. My parents, they, you know, didn't speak the language. And we lived in the back of a, a laundromat that my mother worked at, you know, and my my grandmother was our primary caregiver because my parents had all these jobs. And, you know, when she, she lost her life to Alzheimer's, you know, I realized the power of, of our memory. And a big part of this book is not just remembering facts and figures in foreign languages. People will learn that. It's remembering our life because if our life is worth living, it's worth remembering. You know, to, lo- to remember our loved ones, to remember the lessons. A lot of people learn something, but they repeat the mistakes because they didn't truly remember it. They date the same person, right? Or they make the same mistakes in business or they eat the same, you know, poor food over and over again because they forget how they felt when they ate it. So it goes, it goes way beyond. And, um, well, and what struck me about what you were sharing your story is that not just remembering your life, but, but going from being a passive participant to the protagonist of your own story. Mm. So changing the quality of your life in the moment to moment to moment by retelling the story that you have. And, you know, you made this very interesting distinction between a limit and an obstacle. I just, I'd love to ask you, can yeah. you just go into it a little bit more? Like, why is it important to use different language and what is the difference between them? Yeah, I, I believe that words have a different effect on our, on our brain, on our nervous system. Even changing little words, like um, changing words from, a lot of people say to themselves, I got to pick up the kids, I got to go to work, I got to work out today and go to the gym. But if you change the word God, to get you change that 
that that that O to the letter E. Wow, it's like, a I, huge pivot. You know, I get to pick up the kids. I get to work out today. I get to to go to my job. It feels differently, and so um, so talking about the power of language, I believe that a lot of the the obstacles, um, I believe a lot of the limits we talk about is our lies. There are these limited ideas that we're entertaining, and they're not all real. And, uh, and the obstacles, they're, they're objectively things that we have to face. And I believe that these obstacles, just like in the hero's journey, and you and I are you know, fans of Joseph Campbell's work, they're there, these trials, to be able to, to make us grow. You know, the size of the, the hero is determined by the size of the villain. If you're watching a movie and the villain is just, you know, kind of weak and mediocre, it's not a very exciting movie. Right. It's like the worst plot ending ever. Exactly. <laughs> Pushed him over. That was it. Exactly. Hmm. Not, not. But I know a lot of people right now are listening, and they've had, you know, some significant adversity, and a lot of people, when they're able to get through it and and persevere, they come out saying like, "Wow, I wouldn't wish this upon anybody, but I wouldn't change it for myself." You know, I found a strength. I found a meaning. I found a a mission because of it. And, um, and that's sometimes what, what it's there for. These challenges lead to positive change. So an obstacle could be an opportunity, whereas a limit feels like the end. You know, I, I know for myself, I've definitely hit so many limiting beliefs in my life, and you don't even know they're there because they feel so real. Like, you just think that, oh, that's where it ends. It's not even visible to you. But when you, have, when you create it as an obstacle, so for instance, your brain injury, rather than seeing it as like a hard cap to your potential, you reframed it as sort of a, a, an obstacle, an opportunity to overcome and to triumph over as the hero of your story. And I think that's through adversity comes our advantages. I mean, think about my two biggest challenges when I was growing up were learning and public speaking. And you know, the life has a sense of humor because what do I do almost every day of my life is I public speak on this thing called called learning. So I think struggles could lead to our, our superpowers. So anybody who's listening to this right now and they have challenges, for whatever reason you picked up this, this audio, what I would encourage you is like, we just, we don't know. And there's, that there's a reason. I believe that there's a reason they're here with us listening. Because just like in the hero's journey, when you call, you get this call to adventure, then everything, everything opens up, right? These windows, these mentors, these teachers show up when we're ready. To, to learn. And for those listening, you know, what could a call to adventure look like? Like, you know, in our lives, we, we so rarely treat ourselves and our lives as the profound mythical experience that, that we're actually having. So if, if someone's listening to this book and they're like, I don't know, have I had the call to adventure? Yes. Has something happened? Like, what could that look like for people? I would say to anyone listening to this right now, if you're looking for a sign to be able to go on this adventure of of living and being the best version of yourself, that this is your call right now. This is your sign that you're listening to this and that you you are ready. I I believe, really truly believe that when the student is ready that the teacher does appear and calls could come in every area of our life. The only thing is we have to be paying attention to it. We have to be observing. Later on, we're going to talk about building an incredible memory, right, and being observant. There's so much stimulus out there. How do you focus in a world full of distraction? And part of it has to do with the dominant questions that we ask, because when we ask a question, you ask and you shall receive. 
if you start looking for things, they're going to start showing up. It's very similar to the recent podcast you and I did about lucid dreaming, where if you ask this question before you go to bed, all of a sudden your mind starts pondering and starts building and imagining around it. And if people truly understood how powerful their mind is, they wouldn't say or think something they didn't want to be true. I mean, our minds are this incredible gift. And I wrote this book because I wanted to show people just how amazing they really are. I just want to track back to the title of your book, Limitless, Upgrade Your Brain, Learn Anything Faster, and Unlock Your Exceptional Life. Because that word exceptional, it doesn't get used very often. So can you just tell us, like, what does exceptional mean? What does it mean to you? Why did it end up in the title? You know, the, the word exceptional, we talked about how words have an effect on the brain, and it had a, a, an interesting association for me growing up. When I was in elementary school going through these challenges, I would hang out with the, uh, the geeks and the nerds mm -hmm. in class, not because I had the grades that they had, but because they also loved comic books and video games and playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And I remember one day in class, uh, one of the teachers, educators, came in and said, we have formed a special group called MASP, and it's called the More Able Student Program. The program's called More Able Student Program, MASP, and they went through and hand-selected different students in that class to be part of this, this advanced group, and, um, and these were the exceptional kids, right, the ones that were special, and myself, I wasn't included. I was the only one in that group that wasn't included in our clique. And so I, I felt really left out. You know, I was ready the boy with the broken brain. And I found another kid who was on the other side of the bell curve along with me. We created a group called LASP, Less Able Student Program. <laughs> and it was just the two of us in this group. But the reason why I use the word exceptional is people believe that genius is limited to an elite few. And what I've realized in almost three decades of research and teaching this around the world is that we all have the potential to be exceptional, that we all have the ability to be special. It's just school teaches us what to learn and what to think and what to focus on and what to remember. But again, not how to learn, how to think, how to focus, and how to remember. The question is not how smart you are. It's about how are you smart. It's not how smart you are. It's how are you smart. And when you find the way that you learn your best, then you can really lead an exceptional life. That genius is not born. It is built and it is made. And that's why I wrote this book, so we could all be exceptional. Well, this first chapter has really shown how amazing you are. And I think as a role model, as a teacher, this is an exciting moment. So let's answer the call and go to chapter two. Chapter two, why this matters now. I'm a firm believer that we all have incredible superpowers that are waiting to be awakened. I'm not talking about the ability to fly, create ironclad armor, or shoot lasers from your eyes, but real-life practical abilities like flying through books, ironclad memory, laser focus, 
boundless creativity, clear thinking, mindfulness, superior mental attitude, and more. We are all superheroes in one way or another. Just as every superhero has powers, so do they have an arch nemesis. Enter the super villain. Think the Joker to Batman, Lex Luthor to Superman. The villains we face may not look the same as they do in the movies, but they're still the bad guys, the ones you, as the superhero, need to vanquish and hold at bay. Modern-day supervillains get in our way and make our life harder, keeping us from our potential. They could hold us back and rob us from our productivity, prosperity, positivity, and peace of mind. And it's up to us to recognize and defeat them. If you've ever read a comic book or watched a superhero movie, you know that supervillains are often born of unlikely places. Take Harvey Dent also known as Two-Face, for example. He starts out with the greatest of intentions. He's a prosecutor helping to uphold the law and put the bad guys in jail, and he's an ally of Batman. But through an act of revenge, Dent's face is scarred, and he turns angry, bitter, and vengeful. He becomes what he has spent his life fighting, a duplicitous criminal who gambles with his victims' futures. The good in him becomes twisted and used for sinister ends. In the same way, the four supervillains of learning started out innocent. They are being fed by some of the greatest advancements that humankind has made in the last hundred years. They were given rise by technology. To be clear, technology is a vital part of progress and being limitless. It allows us to do everything from connecting to learning, making our lives that much more convenient. But it is possible that we consume digital technology at a rate that even its creators would find extreme. Much of the technology available to us today is so new that we don't know the level at which we need to control our interaction with it. Through our educational platform, Quick Learning, we have students in 195 countries and have generated tens of millions of podcast downloads. Our community has expressed a growing concern about their over-reliance on technology, and they have come to us to upgrade their brains to find relief from these four horsemen of our age. Digital deluge, digital distraction, digital dementia, and digital deduction. It's important to note that overload, distraction, forgetfulness, and default thinking have been around for ages. While technology doesn't cause these conditions, it has a potential to amplify them. The benefits of the digital age are plentiful. But let's take a look how the advances in technology that help you can possibly also hinder you. Digital Deluge do you have too much to process but not enough time? We're privileged to live in a world with so much unfeathered access to information. In this age of connectivity, ignorance is a choice. Compared to the 15th century, we now consume as much data in a single day as the average person from the 1400s would have absorbed in an entire lifetime. Not so long ago, information moved glacially through word of mouth, or a newspaper, 
or a posted bulletin in town square. Now we have so much access to information that it's taking a toll on our time and our quality of life. The average person consumes three times as much information as we did in the 1960s. A 2015 report indicated that respondents spent eight hours a day consuming media. In an NPR interview, New York Times tech reporter Matt Richtel said that after 20 years of glorifying technology as if all of it were good, quote, I think science is beginning to embrace the idea that some technology is Twinkies and some technology is Brussels sprouts. If we consume too much technology, just like we consume too much food, it could have ill effects, end quote. In a University of California, San Francisco study on the effect of downtime, researchers gave rats a new experience and measured their brain waves during and after the activity. Under most circumstances, a new experience will express new neural activity and new neurons in the brain. That is, if the rat is allowed to have downtime. With downtime, the neurons made their way from the gateway of memory to the rest of the brain, where long-term memory is stored. The rats were able to record memories of their experiences, which is the basis for learning. Doesn't that make you wonder what happens if you don't have downtime? There is a growing body of evidence that suggests that if we never let our mind wander or be bored for a moment, we pay a price. Poor memory, mental fog, and fatigue. As far back as the mid-1990s, where digital deluge was a fraction of the concern it is now, research was beginning to show that there were real health risks involved with navigating through an always-on world. A Reuters study, ominously titled Dying for Information, showed that two out of three respondents associated information overload with tension with colleagues and loss of job satisfaction. 42% attributed ill health to this stress. 61% said that they have to cancel social activities as a result of information overload, and 60% that they are frequently too tired for leisure activities. The study goes on to add, faced with an onslaught of information and information channels, they have become unable to develop simple routines for managing information. What's more, we also have to contend with the fact that the half-life of information has decreased. The half-life of information is the amount of time that passes before that information is replaced by newer or more accurate information. You can study to your heart's content. The information you process now will be outdated sooner than you think. Facts written in articles, books, and documentaries are based on strong evidence and accepted as truth but then they are completely reversed when a new study comes out. I don't need to tell you how completely inundated each of us is with digital details. Even when we try to go off the grid, digital information somehow finds us. While I'm writing this, I've shut down all my devices, but I need to have access to the internet for research purposes, and a handful of random notifications and updates still popped up on my computer. 
Yes, I know I could turn these off as well, but you get my point. In Chapter 12, Study, and Chapter 14, Speed Reading, you will discover practical ways to catch up, keep up, and get ahead of the digital deluge of information you must process every day. Quick Start Take a moment and schedule 30 minutes of white space in your calendar for this week. This is time to be spent away from technology, time dedicated to clear your mind, relax, and be creative. Digital Distraction Before mobile devices, we would say BRB, be right back, all the time when we're online. We don't say it anymore. We no longer leave. We live here now. Because of our always-on, ever-connected devices, we're struggling to find connection when we're with friends and family, and we're struggling to stay focused at work. Most of us deal with some kind of work-life situation where we don't feel comfortable foregoing digital connection for large swaths of time every day. So we stay on the grid out of the fear that if we were unreachable, we would lose out. The trouble is we're wired to enjoy it. Each successive hit of dopamine we get from the likes we share on social media or from the texts we get from loved ones or friends only reinforces our behavior. But those rewards are changing our brains. Instead of relaxing into the downtime that we might experience when waiting in line, waiting for a bus or an appointment, etc., we pull out our phones and train our distraction muscles. What happens when this is our constant way of being? When every loose moment is filled with shiny stimulus? Staying connected may make us feel more secure, but it doesn't necessarily make us happier. Ryan Dwyer, M.A., of the University of British Columbia, led a study that showed how our digital habits are affecting our relationships. In one experiment, more than 300 adults and university students were asked to keep their phones on the table, easily accessible, while others were asked to put them on silent and keep them in a container on the table during a meal. Afterwards, participants were asked to respond to a questionnaire that asked them about their feelings of connectiveness, enjoyment, distraction, and boredom. The survey also asked them to detail the amount of time they spent on their phone during the meal. Those whose phones were accessible used them more often, and they described themselves as feeling more distracted. They also enjoyed the dinner less than the diners who didn't have access to their phones. Modern technology may be wonderful, but it can easily sidetrack us and take away from the special moments we have with friends and family in person, Dwyer says of the study. Just as few of us have learned how to learn, not many know how to process and filter the massive amount of information we are constantly seeing. We just multitask to get all of it in, and this doesn't serve us well. Asking the brain to shift attention from one activity to another causes the prefrontal cortex and striatum to burn up oxygenated glucose, the same fuel they need to stay on task. Notes neuroscientist Daniel J. Levitin in his book, The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. 
and the kind of rapid, continual shifting we do with multitasking causes the brain to burn through fuel so quickly that we feel exhausted and disoriented after even a short time. We've literally depleted the nutrients in our brain. This leads to compromises in both cognitive and physical performance. From app notifications to media alerts, it's not just adults who deal with this. With the availability of technology and social pressure to be online and active on social media, children and teenagers experience the constant distraction too. In chapter 11, Focus, you will discover the keys to sustain concentration and focus development to learn and get things done. Quick start. Go to the notification settings of your phone and turn off all unnecessary and distracting pings and dings. Do this now. Digital Dementia When is the last time you had to remember someone's phone number? I'm dating myself here, but I'm part of a generation that when you wanted to call your friend down the block, you needed to know their number. Can you still remember some of your best friend's numbers from childhood? What about the number of the person you talk or text every day? You no longer have to because your mobile remembers it for you. This is not to say anyone wants to or should memorize 200 phone numbers, but we've all but lost the ability to remember a new one or a conversation we just had, the name of a new potential client or something important we need to do. Neuroscientist Manfred Spitzer uses the term digital dementia to describe how overuse of digital technology results in the breakdown of cognitive abilities. He argues that short-term memory pathways will start to deteriorate from underuse if we overuse technology. It's the same with GPS. Move to a new city and see how quickly you become reliant on GPS to tell you how to get around. Then notice how long it takes you to map new roads in your mind, probably much longer than when you were younger, but not because your brain isn't working as well. With tools like GPS, we don't give our minds the chance to work. We rely on technology to do the memorization for us. This reliance may be hurting our long-term memory. Maria Wimber of the University of Birmingham told the BBC that the trend of looking up information prevents the buildup of long-term memories. In a study that examined the memory habits of 6,000 adults in the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, Wimber and her team found that more than a third of the respondents turned to their computer first to retrieve information. The UK came in the highest. More than half of the participants searched online first without trying to come up with the answers themselves. Why is this a big deal? Because such instant information can be easily and immediately forgotten. Our brain appears to strengthen a memory each time we recall it, and at the same time forget irrelevant memories that are distracting us, said Dr. Wimber. Forcing yourself to recall information instead of relying on an outside source to supply it for you is a way of creating and strengthening a permanent memory, 
when you contrast that with the reality that most of us have a habit of constantly looking up information, maybe even the same information, without bothering to try to remember it, it seems we're doing ourselves harm. Is relying on technology always bad? Many researchers disagree. The argument goes that by outsourcing some menial tasks like memorizing phone numbers or doing basic math or getting directions to a restaurant we visited before, we're saving brain space for something that matters more to us. There's research that says our brains are more like a muscle rather than a hard drive that fills up, that the more you use it, the stronger it gets and the more it could store. The question is, are we making those choices consciously or are we acting out of unconscious habit? Too often we outsource our brains to our smart devices and our smart devices are making us, well, a little bit stupid. Our brains are the ultimate adaptation machines capable of seemingly endless levels of evolution and yet we often forget to give it the exercise it needs. Just as there is a physical price to always relying on the technology of the elevator instead of taking the stairs, so is there a price for lazy mental muscles. Use it or lose it. In Chapter 13, Memory, I will show you simple tools and techniques to remember anything from names and speeches to languages faster and easier. Quick start. Take a minute to exercise your memory. Memorize the phone number of someone you communicate with regularly. Digital deduction. In a digital first world where millennials obtain all their answers to problems at the click of a mouse or a swipe of a finger, the reliance on technology to solve every question confuses people's perception of their own knowledge and intelligence. And that reliance may well lead to overconfidence and poor decision-making, says Roni Zaram, founder of the video collaboration platform Neuro. The ubiquity of information about everything also means that there's a ubiquity of opinion about everything. If you want to know how to feel about a hot button issue, you can just go online and collate the opinions of others. If you want to know the implications of an event or a trend, a quick online search will provide endless amounts of analysis. The upshot is that deduction an amalgam of critical thinking, problem-solving, and creativity that is an essential skill for being limitless is being automated. There's a certain amount of value to this, of course. Before the internet, we were limited in our access to the opinions of others. In an ideal world, being able to get as many perspectives on a topic as possible would be enormously valuable in helping us form our own opinions. Unfortunately, that's rarely how it plays out in the real world. Instead, we tend to identify a handful of sources with which we align and then give those sources extreme influence over our thinking and decision-making. In the process, the muscles we use to think critically and reason effectively are atrophying. We're letting technology do the deduction for us. And if technology is forming our deductions, 
then we are also ceding much of our problem-solving ability, something so important and something we will discuss at length later in this book. Psychologist Jim Taylor defines thinking as the capacity to reflect, reason, and draw conclusions based on our experiences, knowledge, and insights. It's what makes us human and has enabled us to communicate, create, build, advance, and become civilized. He then goes on to caution that there is a growing body of research that technology can be both beneficial and harmful to different ways in which children think. Patricia Marks Greenfield, distinguished professor of psychology at UCLA, has been looking at this issue for more than a decade. In discussing the impact on education, she wrote, what is the effect on learning if college students use their laptops to access the internet during a classroom lecture? This was tested in a communication studies class where students were generally encouraged to use their laptops during lectures in order to explore lecture topics in greater detail on the internet and in library databases. Half of the students were allowed to keep their laptops open, while the other half, randomly assigned, had to close their laptops. Students in the closed laptop condition recalled significantly more material in a surprise quiz after class than did the students in the open laptop condition. Because they were engaging their minds in the lecture rather than looking for what the internet already thought about the subject, they were much more responsive when it was time to reason for themselves. Greenfield analyzed another study that showed that college students who watched a news program without the crawl at the bottom of the screen remembered significantly more of what the anchors were discussing. Playwright Richard Foreman fears that this reliance on the internet to do much of our thinking is changing our very selves. I come from a tradition of Western culture in which the ideal, my ideal, was the complex, dense, and cathedral-like structures of the highly educated and articulate personality, a man or woman who carried inside themselves a personality-constructed and unique version of the entire heritage of the West. But today, I see within us, myself included, the replacement of complex inner density with a new kind of self-evolving under the pressure of information overload and the technology of the instantly available. Do you remember what it was like when you were approaching your teens and you first started formulating thoughts and opinions independent of your parents? My guess is that this experience was extremely liberating for you and that it might have been the first time in your life when you truly felt like your own person. What had happened to you, of course, was that your critical faculties had become refined enough to allow you to regularly employ reason to navigate through life. Why, then, would you want to turn this liberating skill over to a device? Think about it. How do you feel when someone tries to impose their thinking on you? If a family member, friend, or colleague came to you and said, don't think about this, here's your opinion, you try to get away from that person as soon as you possibly could. Yet, when we immediately reach for the internet to provide us with information, we're essentially inviting the same thing. 
In chapter 15, I will provide you with a powerful set of tools that will allow you to supercharge your thinking and expand your perspective on any topic or problem. While these four horsemen are the ones we need to contend with most vociferously, there's another digital danger that is worthy of our attention. Digital depression, a result of the comparison culture that emerges when we let the highlight reels of the social media feeds and others cause us to perceive ourselves as less than. Now, I enjoy social media. I love staying connected with our community of students and podcast listeners and staying updated with the everyday lives of my family and friends. I appreciate it so much as not only a source of entertainment, but also education and empowerment. But I only recommend using it consciously, not mindlessly, out of habit and in a harmonious way so it doesn't hijack your productivity and peace of mind. In the upcoming part two, Limitless Mindset, I share ideas to mitigate these feelings of not being enough, as well as fears of looking bad or missing out. Those are the same limits that stand in the way of personal growth and learning. In part three, Limitless Motivation, I will show you how to add, break, or change these habits. Quick start. Think about a decision you need to make and schedule some time to work on that decision without the use of any digital devices. Keeping the villains at bay. In the hero's journey, the heroes need villains just as much as villains need heroes. The challenges from trials and rivals make us grow and become better the power and strength of the villain determines the necessary power and strength of the hero. If the villain was weak, there would be nothing to vanquish and no need for the hero to rise to greatness. In my podcast interview with Simon Sinek, author of The Infinite Game, Simon refers to our worthy rivals, those who help point out the personal weaknesses we need to address. This is where your opportunity lies. As I mentioned, I love the light side of technology, how it can connect us, educate us, and empower us, make our lives easier. What we've just described are a few drawbacks of technology, which is an inherent part of all the good things that it brings into our lives. Like fire, technology has changed the course of human history. However, fire can cook your food or burn your home down. It's all in how you use it. Like any tool, technology itself isn't good or bad, but we must consciously control how it's used. If we don't, then who becomes the tool? It's up to you to choose how you engage. Quick start. Which of the four digital supervillains do you believe are currently most disrupting your performance productivity, and peace of mind. Take a moment and write the name of this villain down in your notepad. Conscious awareness is the first part to solving a problem.
Okay, so now we're at the supervillains. This is where the story starts to get interesting. Yeah, where you, you accepted the call to adventure, and now you have you have to face the four these. horsemen, which is which is such a great way to provide a conceptual framework for something. I think we all feel we we feel the impacts daily of you know these different sort of challenges with our digital technology, but we don't have words to describe it. So that's right. that's super super helpful. I just want to check like. We talk about them as villains, but but you also talk about the power of them. So you're not anti-technology. No, I'm actually very pro-technology. I'm so excited uh, where the world is going. There's so much abundance with uh, as advances in technology goes to be able to, to educate people, to empower them, to allow us to be connected. Um, what we're highlighting here are some of the potential drawbacks. And, and so you could be better prepared. And, I, and when I'm talking about the four horsemen, I'm not saying there's going to be an apocalypse to intelligence or anything like that. If anything, we have, we, we are, we have the capability to be more intelligent and more empowered. What I'm challenged with is that I think everybody can relate to this, that they're listening, that we're always on all the time. And our brains are never shutting off, and it's not getting that downtime, and it's also not getting the exercise it would normally get if we're relying on technology to remember things for us, to do the thinking for us. You know where what makes us human, and a lot of jobs right now they're being outsourced to automation, artificial intelligence, uh, to to machines, and what makes us human is our ability to be creative to use our imagination, to use our critical thinking. And, and that's why this, this book is so timely and also timeless, because these super villains, quote unquote, are just gonna get stronger in, in, in power, meaning there's gonna be more overload. You think it, there's a lot of deluge now, it's just gonna grow. The amount of information is doubling at dizzying speeds. You know, more pings and dings and rings in terms of distraction you know, more dependence on third-party technology and, and doing the thinking for us. So it's, again, it's about responsibility. It's about using it consciously. Well, it's interesting because, you know, even though they, they seem like supervillains maybe in this context, they're, they're, it's a huge part of it is how we show up in, mm -hmm. in our relationship with it. Yeah, and the choices we make in relationship with it, whether we want to use those technologies to free up those parts of our brains, yeah. like for higher thinking, or whether we just get trapped in a distraction cycle. It's exactly how it's employed. Another way of looking at it is they're not necessarily supervillains, but they could be superpowers. You know, technology is a superpower, but it's the intention behind how it's being used. And so, some just having superpowers doesn't make you a superhero. You have to use those powers for good, because somebody who have a lot of, who has a lot of superpowers could use it for not so good as well. And you talk about in this chapter the power of having the awareness, like just becoming aware that you know that these different challenges will show up in our day to day lives. For someone who is is just beginning to work with this framework, what's a helpful way to start to notice? when they're being subjected to digital deluge or distraction or deduction or dementia? How, how can we start to really notice moment yeah. to moment? I think awareness is the starting point for all change. Even when we look at our phone, you could look at the settings in terms of how much screen time you're spending actually engaged with your, with your technology. And I think a lot of people will be very surprised. And again, I'm all for technology to be able to do work and to be productive and to connect with people. It's the habit 
of when we're bored, where we reach to it um, out out of just uh, it's like the routine. new anxious smoking. You know, we've nothing to do. You go to an airport. I I always blows my mind. I'm sitting in the airport. I look around and. You know, we use our phones, and we don't just use them in a normal way. There's a particular behavioral pose we have where we bend down necks, like right mm-hmm. down, like penguins. You just bend that neck down, and you can see like hundreds of people in right. this mode. Like no one's sitting, no one's looking around, no one's engaging in conversation anymore. We're, we're very much any downtime we would have had before is distraction time now. Yeah, one of the, one of the things we talk about in this book coming up are. The ten things or, or more that I do every single morning to jumpstart my brain. You know, the, this idea where if you want to win the day, you have to win that first hour of the day. But one of the habits that that most people engage with is actually decreasing their productivity and their performance and peace of mind. Is they're they're reaching for their phone. And I know this is hitting a nerve for some people that are listening to this right now. But as your brain coach, I want to call you on on what could really serve you and what's not serving you. And when you wake up, you're in this very relaxed state, in these alpha, theta brainwave states where you're very suggestible. But if the first thing you do in the morning is grab for your phone, what you're doing is you're rewiring your brain for two things. Number one, you're rewiring your brain to be distracted. Again, every like, share, comment, cat video, whatever it is, it's going along the motivation, learning uh, centers of your nervous system, and it's, it's, it's building your distraction. Whatever you're doing repeatedly, you're getting good at. So you're teaching yourself to be distracted. But the other thing it's doing, it's rewiring your brain to be reactive, meaning that the quality of our life comes down to really the quality of our agency, you know, where we could proactively impose like what, you know, our thoughts and our, our ideas into the, into the world. But if you're picking up your phone, the first thing, and all of a sudden you get text messages and emails and social media messages or a voicemail or something, you know, you could get one message that could hijack your whole day. And now you're in defense and now you're reacting to everything. You're fighting fires as opposed to starting your day with true intention, you know, a a day based on design. Technology is wonderful. It's just using it with intent with specific applications, not out of boredom or out of pure habit. Well, I know you're going to get into some of the practical solutions for, you know, how to combat maybe some of the sort of digital overwhelm, Uh, but that's external technology. Let's learn a little bit more about our own internal technology, the brain. Chapter 3, Your Limitless Brain. You may be thinking, Jim, I see what you mean about technology. I wouldn't want to live without it, but I do feel more overloaded, distracted, and forgetful than ever. Here's the good news. You were born with the ultimate technology, the greatest superpower. Let's take a moment to acknowledge just how extraordinary your brain is. It generates up to 70,000 thoughts per day. It races with the speed of the fastest race car. Like your fingertips, it is uniquely yours. There aren't two brains in the universe exactly the same. It processes dramatically faster than any existing computer, and it has virtually infinite storage capacity. Even when damaged, it is capable of producing genius. And even if you only have half a brain, you can still be a fully functioning human being. 
and remarkable stories about it abound, like the one about the comatose patient who somehow developed a method of communication with his doctor, or the woman who could recall important events by date going back as far as when she was 12 years old, or the slacker who became a mathematical genius after suffering a concussion during a bar fight. None of this is science fiction or the product of a superhero comic. They're just examples of the extraordinary function built into that remarkable machine between your ears. We take so much of that function for granted. Let's think about just what the average person has accomplished simply by being an average person. By the age of one, you learned how to walk. No simple task considering how many complex neurological and physiological processes are required. A year or so after that, you learned how to communicate through the use of words and language. You learned dozens of new words and their meanings on a daily basis and kept doing so all the way through school. And while you were learning to communicate, you were also learning to reason, to calculate, to parse an endless number of complex concepts. And all of that was before you read a single page of a book or attended one class. Our brains are what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. Think about it. We can't fly. We aren't particularly strong or fast. We can't climb with the dexterity of some animals. We can't breathe underwater. As far as most physical functions are concerned, we're just average. But because of the power of our brains, we are overwhelmingly Earth's most dominant species. By harnessing that incredible mental power, we have created ways to explore the ocean depths like a fish, move tons of weight like an elephant, and even fly like a bird. Yes, the brain is quite a gift. The brain is so complex that we know more about our vast universe than we do about its workings. We've learned more about it in the past decade than we've previously learned over the course of human history. And we'll learn even more about it from the time this book goes to press to the time it hits the bookshelves. Our understanding of the brain is ever evolving. And we know that what we've learned about it is only a tiny fraction of what there is to be learned. But what we already know is staggering. So let's take a journey through your limitless brain. The brain is part of the central nervous system, CNS. Similar to the control tower at an airport, your brain acts as its control center, directing all the coming and goings of information, processes, and impulses. The brain has three major areas, the brainstem, the cerebellum, and the cerebral cortex. Both the cerebellum and the cerebral cortex start with cer, Latin for wax because of its waxy appearance. The brain is made of fat and water, weighs approximately three pounds, and facilitates incredible power and ability. The brain stem moderates the basic functions we need to live, such as breathing, maintaining a regular heart rate, impulses to eat or have sex, and our fight 
and flight responses. It is located at the top of your spine and the base of your skull, buried deep within the brain. At the back of the brain, the cerebellum is responsible for moderating movement and coordination. There's also increasing evidence that it plays a role in our decision-making. The cerebral cortex is the largest part of our brain, where the majority of our complex thinking, short-term memory, and sensory stimulation takes place. It is made up of the occipital, parietal, temporal, and frontal lobes. Our frontal lobes are where most of our thinking takes place, where logic and creativity derive. The brain is split into two halves. They are connected by the corpus callosum, which acts like a bundle of telephone wires between the lobes, sending messages back and forth. Right now, you have somewhere around 86 billion neurons, also called brain cells, firing and acting together in concert as you hear these words and assimilate this information. These neuronal signals are released in the brain and received by neurotransmitters, which then pass the message along to other neurotransmitters or stop the message altogether if that's the appropriate response. We used to think that we reached our neurological peak in late adolescence, after which our brains never changed, other than to deteriorate. We now know that this is far from the truth. Our brains have the capacity for neuroplasticity, which means that it can be changed and shaped by our actions and by our environments. Your brain is always changing and molding itself to your surroundings and to the demands you place on it. Because our brains are subject to the influence of our genes and environment, we each possess a brain that is entirely unique to us. They're like snowflakes, no two are alike, each brain adapts to the needs of its owner. Let's look at someone raised in an environment that was full of stressors, such as poverty, lack of access to food, or lack of safety. That person will have a very different brain structure than someone brought up in a very comfortable, affluent, well-cared-for setting. But before you jump to the conclusion that one environment is quote-unquote better than the other and breeds a better functioning brain, I challenge you to reconsider. As I stated earlier, the brain is capable of being molded and shaped, meaning that at any point, anyone can decide to change the way their brain functions. While it's easy to assume that the individual who grew up in a more stressful, unsupportive environment may not wind up reaching their full potential due to their brain's development under those conditions, growing evidence suggests those people are able to thrive and reach new levels of success due to the mindset they are forced to develop in such a situation. Based on the number of successful people who overcame troubled upbringings, it may be that a difficult childhood or challenging upbringing breeds resilience among other attributes that can lead to success. Understanding Neuroplasticity What can we learn from the brains of London taxi drivers? 
This is the question neuroscientist Eleanor McGuire of University College London posed as she considered the vast amount of information held in the brains of the city's cab drivers, appropriately called the knowledge. To earn their licenses, applicants traveled by moped through a specific section of the city, a 10-kilometer radius of Charing Cross Station for three to four years, memorizing the maze of 25,000 streets within, as well as thousands of attractions they supported. Even after this intense study, only about 50% of applicants pass the series of licensing exams. Perhaps, thought McGuire, those successful had larger-than-average hippocampi. McGuire and her colleagues discovered that London taxi drivers did indeed have more gray matter in their posterior hippocampi than people who were similar in age, education, and intelligence who did not drive taxis. In other words, taxi drivers had plumper memory centers than their peers. It seemed that the longer someone had been driving a taxi, the larger the hippocampus, as though the brain expanded to accommodate the cognitive demands of navigating London's streets. <laughs> 